So, okay, you guys know how this goes. So it's, it's funky music, right? And then uh, Jack gets on and he goes, Welcome to the Rider Dojo! And, but he says it in a better radio voice than I do. Welcome to the Rider Dojo! And he says, With your host, Steve Diamond. With your host, Steve Diamond. Well, that's me. I'm Steve. It's good to see y'all. Thank you guys for coming out so much. We appreciate it. And Larry Correa. Yeah, this is him. I don't know if you know this guy. Um, I, hear, I hear one day he's going to be a big deal. Um, it's true. All right, Larry, hit me. I got my dumb quote. Go for it. Oh, you've already done yours? I did mine. Mine was just high. It was a very big quote. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. (laughs) Woo! Ah, good. (sighs) I tell you guys, tells you guys approximately the date that we're recording this episode. Today's episode... Live from Writer's Cantina 2023. Thank you, Bill Pullman. Um, all right, so we, we don't really have a, uh, like a theme for you today. Um, what we want is for those of you who are here, generally we only do Q&A from our supporters. Uh, that, that's, who we, that's who we let them do, okay? That, that's what we do. But since we're here and because we're lazy... We, uh, we figured we would let any of you guys ask any questions that you want, and then some of those questions will inevitably spark tangents to where Larry and I will ramble on for five or ten minutes, um, thus uninvolving you. So, um, That's so how yeah. we roll. Uh, but if you have a question, and I hope you have questions, and you better have questions, um, come on up, ask them into the mic, uh, and I'm going to, we'll, we'll record it, and you'll actually sound pretty on the microphone, probably. Yeah, this is, uh, just guys, we recorded our 100th episode uh, just a little while ago, so this will probably be somewhere about 110 or 12, is when this, when we started this show, we thought we'd get like maybe 10 episodes. <laughs> I mean, we figured we'd run out of stuff to talk about eventually. No, that, is not a, that has not been an issue. So if no. you guys want to just come on up whenever you're ready. and Yeah, just maybe line up over going this way. Oh, got it. For those of you on the, who are listening to the show recorded, I just waved to a different way. Hold on. Hold on one second. Let me unmute you if I can figure this freaking thing out. We also are, we don't have our um, Diamond 2.0, or sorry, <laughs> Diamond 2.1 uh, uh, audio a, technician. AV technician. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, it's good. If you, if you could rewind your writing career to the very beginning, is there anything you would do differently? Oh. Yes. That's a good question. I would not have published with Ragnarok. <laughs> or their follow-on company. Um? Or their follow-on company. Wow. Okay, uh, no, I, I would, I, I, I'm a better writer now. And, like, so I, I it, honestly, you, you get practice as you go. And so, but this is one of those only businesses where you will be judged by your rookie year forever. Um, and so could I go back in time and, and change stuff? Yeah, I probably would. Any big stuff? No, I've never had any experiences like Steve getting hosed. Um, I mean, I've made some dumb business decisions. I've, uh, I've let some opportunities pass me by that I feel kind of stupid about. <laughs> um, but overall, no, I ha- I've had a pretty good run, so I don't, I wouldn't change much. Oh, and I wouldn't have published with Privateer Press either. <laughs> yeah, Steve's just like the guy. <laughs> Freaking A. All right. 
with this current situation we're in where we are now starting network as riders, is there any other plans for, say, virtual events for people who cannot travel this far out? Hmm. Hmm. That is a good question. Okay, so this... I would have to assume so. Well, let's back up a little bit for the people who are listening to the podcast at home. Writer's Cantina is an event put on by uh, Nathan Shoemate, was was the mastermind of this here in Utah. And what it was is Nathan just wanted to put together an event for writers to network. So everybody here in the audience is a writer. Uh, uh, everybody here who's presenting as a writer, just different levels of career. So we've got some inspiring people, some noobs. Uh, we got some experienced old hands, uh, really old gray hands here and uh basically well no it's actually so this is the first one they've ever done it's a one-day event and so far it looks like it's been a great success the yeah. place is full and people are having a great time and networking and meeting other writers uh and it's a great opportunity now so the question was are there going to be more of more events like this and also remote ones i have no idea on as far as this particular organization i don't know if they're going to do that um if you guys are listening at home, wanted to join our Writer Dojo Facebook group, you totally can do that. We have that uh, online. It's a great source for you to network with other writers on there. Jeez, um, but as far as other online writer events? I don't know. I mean, uh, what I do know is that there are plans for this to be, if it all works out, to be a two-day event next year, hopefully. That would be awesome, right? Um, you know, a few more people and stuff, but, you know, roughly... Roughly same size or so, but just more, more days. Uh, now, online, online the, man, I don't know. Okay, the danger of that, most online writing communities are toxic hellholes yeah. of awfulness and, and horrible people. So Dan Willis is an author who's here, a uh, great guy, and Dan sent me a video he found on TikTok, which I don't go to. Yeah, that's dumb. And that. so, but it was some writer who writes... Um, he actually wanted to know. He guys, he's like, you guys might want to talk about this on the show. It was some fairly successful writer of some other genre, and it was just her like ten minutes of yelling at people and telling them what they're not allowed to do and how her genre is getting out of control of people doing writing things that she doesn't approve of and how that's really bad. And so, unfortunately, that right there, there was a microcosm of a lot of the online writing communities out there. Um, so be careful, guys. And uh, I don't, I don't, I, I, so the writer go to a Facebook page. Um, it's kind of Thunderdome at times. If people like get into fights on there and they, and then they, they, they'll come on and they'll say something like controversial and then other people start arguing with them and then they'll come to me and Steve and they're like, people are being rude to me. It's like, well, pfft, yeah. yeah, you started it. You yeah. work it out. I ain't your dad. <laughs> yeah. And in the, in the words of the philosopher, Sean and Gus from psych, they can suck it. <laughs> And we actually had one guy who tried to lie to us. He's like, well, people attacked me with personal attacks and said, you should ban them. And it's like, it's like, do you, where are those personal attacks? I just read the thread. He's like, well, they must have deleted them. He's like, ah, little do you realize that as admin, we get to see all the edits that were made to all the posts. You tried to lie to me, kid. <laughs> yeah. It's like, dude, I've been on the internet since the dawn of the internet. You, you, I, don't speak to me of the old magic <laughs> witch. I was there when it was written. <laughs> I will say that um, I, I think I, I think that in person you get much better networking traction with people. At least that's just my feeling. Um, it, through the Rider Dojo, and don't get me wrong, I mean the writer, the community that the Rider Dojo has built has been fantastic, and it's wonderful, and it's actually shockingly nice and helpful 
for an internet group. Um, but when, when we were at LibertyCon a couple weeks ago, uh, we showed up and, and a bunch of the people came up and said hi. And, you know, they had to point to what their picture looked like on Facebook so I knew who they were. But as soon as they did that, it was much better. Like all of a sudden that connection was stronger. And I don't think you can replace one-on-one -on -one human connection with, with, a, with a facsimile of, of being online. I don't think you can do that. I mean, hell, Larry and I met because of a convention. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we met at a convention uh, about 14 years ago. Right. Yeah. And, and at that time, all, all it was was I wanted to interview Larry. And I, I was met a, him. And I was a new, but I was the rookie. So he you had guys, one book out. So yeah. So you guys here in the audience, you're like, you know, you're the new guys. Talk about the value of networking. I met Steve who I've spent the rest of my career working with him in various ways yeah. at an event like this where I was the new guy. And, and I had zero. I had nothing. I didn't even have a single story published. And so to go from, from that to where, like, this guy's one of my brothers, like, you, you can't get that. I mean, I'm sure you can, but I think it's much rarer to get that from, like, an online event. Um, I mean, I see there's, there's a several people in this room who who are good friends of mine now because of this, because of like in-person events. And that's important. And so I, I look, I, when, if the only way you can attend said con is to go virtually, cool. But if you can go in person and your budget allows it, um, be fiscally responsible people, if your budget allows it, go. That's what I think is really nice. Nathan is doing this one day thing. Yeah. Because one day is a lot less of a commitment for a lot of people. Uh, especially if you're local, as far as getting time off work and getting away from your family and your kids yeah. and all that stuff, than it is to travel to a, another event. But then again, if you're traveling, it kind of sucks because you're driving all the way here either way. For one day. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. one day. So there's pros and cons to both of these. Yeah. Asking for a friend, of yeah. course. When do you know when to stop outlining, stop world building, and start writing? Well, that's the easy part if you're, if you're a discovery writer. <laughs> <laughs> You just skip that whole process and go. That's I it. I don't know. That's, okay, so it's an ironic, ironic that you asked that because the next guy standing in line behind you is a, is a, history, is a guy with a history degree who did uh, one month of research before he started his book based on the time frame of his specialty in his history degree. Um, and I just know that because he was telling me that earlier. But we'll get to him in a second. But Okay, so the biggest thing is research is fun. And research can be very addictive. And so as a writer, you're like, okay, this is cool. I'm having a good time researching my story. But I've also run into people who are like, yeah, I've been researching this story and the setting and working on the setting for four years. I'm almost ready to get started. Dude, <laughs> you should have started three years and nine months ago. There's not really an arbitrary number. The main thing is if it's keeping you from writing the book, you've gone too long. Uh, because research for research sake can be a lot of fun. But you know what? Uh, it ain't paying the bills. So what you need to do is research just enough to get started and you keep researching while you're writing. And I've even talked about this on the show when we're doing editing. Yep. If I'm on the, if I'm in a flow and I'm like, boom, 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 and I'm having a good time and I'm writing and I get to a point where I need to research something, I will put a mark, you know, for me it's XXX, that way I can control F and go find them all real easy. And I'll put XXX, that's a little note that I need to, and I'll put a note, what's the name of this river? Or, you know, how... How much lime does it take to dissolve a human body? Or whatever it may be. <laughs> and then I'm still writing the book, though. That's the key. And then when I have a down moment or I'm not feeling creative, 
and I'm not feeling that like drive, I'm still going to work. And that's when I go to do the research. So tell your friend who, who uh, <laughs> I like, I like writers whenever we have like some deep, dark thing that we're struggling with. I'm asking for a, a friend, friend of mine. Yeah. A friend just, of mine. It's just like drug dealing. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend with a cocaine and hookers problem. And I was wondering, <laughs> how do you uh, hide illegal machine guns? Oh, well, tell your friend. <laughs> do you smuggle cocaine into the White House? <laughs> Also, you guys could tell when this was recorded. <laughs> About one fifty-pound bag of lies should. Correct. <laughs> uh, but let's say somebody who's been listening to the podcast and followed all of his advice finally gets published. Yes. What now? Uh, so you're published with with a traditional publisher. How do you, as just the author, get the word out? Mm. Oh, and that's a good question. Special congratulations to the guy who just asked that, Josh Hill, who just got his first publishing deal. Nice. Okay, so speaking of getting the word out, there you go. There's uh, there's one there's for you part guys. Of it. Um, Josh, what's the name of the book? Forever Fields. Forever, Forever Fields by Josh Hill will be out uh, next year. Next year, next next March. Next March. Okay. There you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. That that's how you get the word out. No, um, no. So serious, seriously, that this is actually the biggest challenge we face yeah, right now. It really is. I I, I don't know that there's one good answer anymore. Um, and I think traditional publishing uh, in general has kind of dropped the ball. Oh, traditional publishing is like way behind the power curve. They're still living in the 90s. Yeah, they're still trying to do 1990s level marketing. We see this at every level. There's not nobody who's excelling right now at marketing and traditional publishing. Uh, they all kind of suck. And when you do see somebody break through huge, it's usually because the author did something. And it could be wildly different. And what works for one person does not work for another. Like I saw recently some dude got some big viral TikToker talking about his book. And so he shot to the number one in Amazon. You know, it, it just depends. In the old days, you would like try to find the people who were looking for your specific kind of book. Where do they congregate and then target them somehow? When I say target, I mean that in a nice way. Okay. <laughs> There's a, well, I guess all publicity is good publicity, right? I mean, Martha Stewart went to prison. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, don't do that. Saying. Okay, so I, I, there, there, I don't think there's really a good answer. There's, people like to think social media. Okay, but social media is a broad answer. There's a lot of ways to do social media that aren't necessarily the right way for you to do it. Like, people try to mimic me on social media. Probably not going to work because I have a very specific confrontational personality that thrives in that environment, um, not for the faint of heart. I mean, I could, I could do literally word for word the exact same things that you were doing and get nothing from it. Yeah. So, so, there's, so what works for one guy is not going to work for somebody else. So you guys got to think about this. How are you going to approach this? What are you good at? Who are your target audience? Where do they congregate? How can I reach them? How can I get my product in front of them and let them know that this is interesting and something they're into? Now, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> That's the hard part. Now, we talk about like the TikTok stars, but just because you get on the front of some you know, big influencer doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get book sales off that because it depends on what percentage of those people read and what percentage of those are going to go buy a book based upon the recommendation of some viral person? I see a lot of people think there's like an easy button. I got an argument once with somebody who has since their career has completely collapsed and died. So I was arguing with this person about writing stuff. And 
They're like, oh, you only have 20,000 Twitter followers. I have 250,000 Twitter followers. And I'm like, I don't give a crap. I care how many of them buy books. That's all that matters to me. And you know what? I have a career and she doesn't still. And this is like, you know, this is like five years ago now. <laughs> and, and the, well, so I would only have 10,000. So she had like, she had like 200 times or whatever. I, you know, she had a lot of Twitter followers. doesn't matter. That's why my little alphabetical list of author success, I have one that's like, you know, you have a lot of Twitter followers. It doesn't matter, guys. The key is getting in front of people who want to give you money for your stuff and then figure out how to get in front of those people who want to give you money for your stuff. Well, and I, and I think some of this comes back to the whole networking thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not ashamed in the slightest to admit that I have a death grip on Larry's coattails at the moment. Yep. Um, but, but here's the thing. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I write has the, the Venn diagrams of what I write and what Larry write, they overlap. And so there are enough readers of, Larry, of Larry's um, very ginormous fandom who will see what I write and they'll, they'll pick that up too. Um, and, and so you, you can build your, net, your, your audience that way. Cool. Additionally, um, if you have other like authors who do the same sort of stuff, that, who write in the same sort of vein as you do, and this is something that I'm working on right now actually, that's, that's going out and finding those same authors and their audiences and effectively um, like book sharing or, or market sharing with them. Be real so careful and be cool when you do that, though. Just don't intrude into other author groups or people and be like, here's my book. Buy it. Okay, first off, authors aren't, aren't necessarily your target audience. They rarely are. They rarely are because most of us don't have time to read and we, get up, we have 10,000 free books we need to read anyway. And so, like, being pushy in groups with other authors is get you here. You want to make this organic. Be friends with authors, and if they want to read your stuff and then talk about your stuff. A lot of book sales for a lot of new guys come from the fact that some other author told their fans, hey, guys, if you like my stuff, check out so-and-so. Yep. And that, that's a great way to go about it. But you need to do that organically by making friends, networking, and don't just be pushy and like be, yo, hey, author, read my book, because I guarantee that dude's got a seven-foot-tall stack of paperbacks next to his bed. Yep. That he is feeling guilty that he has not read yet. Yep. I am that guy. Yep. I am that guy, too. Evelyn Adamson grew up knowing she had to hide her psychic abilities lest she be labeled a witch. However, when the U.S. Army Air Corps came calling in 1943 looking for psychic women to help their beleaguered bomber force, Evelyn answered, hoping to use her powers to integrate the bomber crews and save American lives. She was extremely successful at it, until her aircraft got shot down. Now Evelyn is on the run in occupied Europe with a special unit of German soldiers and an enemy psychic on her heels. Worse, Evelyn learns that using her psychic powers functions as a strobe that highlights her to the enemy. As the enemy psychic closes in, Evelyn is faced with a dilemma in her struggle to escape. How can she make it back to England when the only talent she has will expose her if she uses it. Minds of Men by Casey Ezel, book one of The Psyche of War, available now. Pick up your copy today. So you've talked about uh, in 
um, like getting influences from video games sure. like Mass Factor, yep. and then mm -hmm. um, for Servants of War, filing off the serial numbers. Sure. Just open advice on filing, like filing off the serial numbers, and uh, just like how you avoid being too similar in two different. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so like if you get ideas from other properties, you know what? That's inevitable. It's inevitable. We all, guys, you're, you, everything you create is going to be a product of your experiences and what's in your brain. And that's perfectly fine. A lot of people say, well, I need something that's totally original. Well, that dude doesn't understand storytelling because that ain't how it works. If you get an idea, like let's say I'm playing uh, DMZ in Call of Duty. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Theoretically here. Not, Theoretically. Not never happened. And, and like, I have, like, a really cool mission with my squad. Like, it go, that's a very cinematic game mode, like, interesting thing. And something, like, shakes out, like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I want to, I could write this as an action sequence. That, that how I, well, first off, I'm going to tune it to whatever the world is I'm setting it in. And it better not be set in the world that Activision owns, because yeah. they will sue me to death. Okay. Um, in fact, one of our interviews coming up from LibertyCon is a... He was, he's a Call of Duty dad. He's a Call of Duty dad. So he's literally the, one of the designers of the yeah, game we, we interviewed on the show. It. Actually, it'll probably have already aired by the time we put this on. Maybe. <laughs> Never mind. Um, but you want to think about, like, so it's got to be set in your world, your creation. And when I say file the serial numbers off, think about, like, so when we did Servants of War, if we're talking about stuff that's, like, Slavic mythology that is a common thing for like, you know, Slavic mythology. No company owns that. Yeah. Right? That's fine. Um, if you if you're talking about Thor, the the god of thunder from Norse mythology, that's fine. If you're talking about and it's clearly Thor, the god of thunder from the Marvel universe, you're gonna get sued by Disney, okay? So you need to when you say Look at it reasonably, and if people, if your alpha readers can easily recognize where you got this from, then you need to back up and say, what do I need to change to make this mine? You know, this is, it needs to be my creation, my setting, my unique thing. Mm -hmm. Honestly, what happens is by the time you actually put that effort in, you can tell because it will evolve as you write it. Ideas come from everywhere. I mean, and like... Steve's Steve writes Luther Werewolf Cop, but it's not Luther, right? I mean, look, if Idris Elba wants to play the role, I ain't gonna say no. No, no, you, you'd be dumb to turn that down. I mean, it's like like you know Raylan Givens Space Marshal. Okay. Well, actually, they they went ahead and did that on Star Wars, so who are yeah. we kidding? <laughs> I mean, uh, Harry, Harry Bosch. There we go. Harry, yeah. Harry Bosch in space. Yeah. So you like like you want to do Bosch in space? I know a thing or two about that right now. Okay. And Lost Planet Homicide number three is coming to Audible soon. Um, very cool. Um, so just make sure you make it your own. That's the key. So I discover you wrote most of my work in progress, and I'm wondering, like, I, how do you fix a character's arc if you've got an entire draft already finished? Oh, okay. Sure. Um, you know, par part of that is going to come from experience. The more you discover you write, the, the more a lot of these things tend to kind of plan themselves out in your head in advance. The human brain is, is pretty amazing. Um, it does a lot of work for you when you don't realize it is. In uh, and, and the, the reality is that when it comes to discovery writing versus outlining, um, it's very rarely one or the other. Uh, in fact, I, I would argue it's never one or the other. Well, like I just started book five of Son of the Black Sword, the yeah. fifth final book. And uh, I started writing it before I finished the outline. 
Well, yeah. You know, because why not? Well, or, or you know, I can very easily argue that um, me discovery writing a novel is just me. I've just done that outlining planning in my head. Well, or, you- or your discovery writing, your outline. Okay? Now, all of that aside, you've got your product. You're going for it. Um, honestly, look at the character arc. See where they're going. What their goals are where you need them to be or want them to be at the end of the story. And then look at all the individual beats that that character is going through from chapter to chapter. If somewhere within that context, you find fault um, and you find that, 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 that character's arc has is short or falls short, or it's just not where you want it to be, man, that's what rewriting's for. Um, I mean, we, we jokingly complain about it all the time. Um, I mean, I, I complained on the show just, just a few weeks ago how I'd edited three books back to back to back. And part of that was me going through and making sure that the character arcs were exactly what I needed them to be. Sometimes that was softening a moment. Sometimes that was spiking a moment higher. Um, it, it, it's just part of the process. So just go through, evaluate, be, be realistic with it, evaluate it, be honest with yourself. And if that means it's going to take you a substantial amount of effort to fix them, to make them exactly what that story needs, do it. It's cool. It's okay. Don't but, be afraid of it. Well, don't feel bad too, because we all do it. All oh, yeah. of us, all of us have done that. I'm talking about the show where you go up the wrong hill and once you're at the top of that hill, you got to decide, well, I went up the wrong hill. Am I going to back up and go the right way? Or am I going to forge onto the wilderness to who knows where, but either way you're on the hill and, you, and you're going to have to go somewhere. So I found that the longer I've been doing this, the less I have to edit afterwards. Yeah just because of practice. My earlier books, I spent a lot less time writing, a lot more time editing. Now I spend more time writing and very little time editing because I got practice. So you will recognize as you go or you will recognize when it's done and you read the finished product where you went wrong. Yeah, and I've uh, one of the things that I've been noticing because again, I discovery write most of my stuff unless it's a collaboration. Um, and I've discovered a lot now that that process of recognizing that my character is is going a little bit out of control from me, that process becomes faster and faster the more I do it, just like anything. I mean, if you're learning how to type, the more you type, the faster you get, right? Just, just like anything. And so the, the, the concept of character arcs and the creation and, and, and what they're doing, the process of recognition of that comes a little bit quicker each time you do a story. So yeah, like, like Larry said, don't, one, don't feel bad. Two, don't be afraid of it. Just embrace it. Give it a big old hug, um, a big old sloppy hug, and then just roll with it. Um, and then do it again and again and again. And it, then at a certain point, you're just going to be like, oh, okay. I know what my own tendencies are. I know where I'm going with this. And then you're good. And the flip side, which I always recommend this and Larry always recommends this. If you're, an, if you're a discovery writer, try outlining. If you're an outliner, try discovery writing. You might learn a thing or two that will help you in the, the planning process of your stories. So let's say you, um, you missed a time as far as like reading a book or a series of books. Maybe it just wasn't for you or maybe you didn't like an ending or something. What's the best advice you could give for pulling what's like maybe something like a useful lesson out of like a series? Oh. Oh, so it's like something that didn't click with you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, your entire career is built out of that. Yeah, it's true. Out of spite uh, um, for that. For real. Um, 
No, there is actually something to that. And we, we don't usually think of it as it, it's kind of like a positive space, negative space kind of thing. We don't, we talk about the positive a lot. We don't talk about the negative a lot, but you actually can learn from the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily that it's a mistake. A lot of times it's just, you weren't the target audience, but that's fine. Like I, we've talked about the show, like Stephanie Myers has 80 bazillion million dollars, um, but her books aren't for me and that's fine. But that said, if I read a book and something falls flat, I can then look at it and go, why did that fall why? flat? And then I can avoid that once I identify it. Or the other one is like, we, we talk about like on the show a lot, we talk about movies, uh, uh, movie plot stuff, even though they're not books, but we'll talk about movie plotting stuff because movies are also very accessible for most of us when we're talking about, especially these big budget yeah. familiar ones. If a story falls flat there, I'm going to say, why is that broken? Why did that bug me? And then I'm going to avoid it. Um, and if it made me angry, uh, then I will Ooh. spite write the opposite yep. and make it good as I can just to show how I would have done it. I mean, that's, that's literally why I wrote Residue. Yeah, because you were annoyed at I was annoyed at YA. all YA. Yeah, and Steve was annoyed at YA. And funny thing is, the redo of this book is not YA anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny. Well, so Monster Hunter was was uh, was out of spite just of because at the time, I felt like like the that genre of like this is before I even knew what urban fantasy was, but 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 horror elements, action adventure, I thought it had kind of gone up its own butt, <laughs> you know. And I wanted to write something that was back to the roots of just shoot the evil monster in the face, get paid, you know, have fun. So. Yes. Yeah, learn, learn. This also, the downside of this is it also kind of ruins entertainment for you a lot. And you will, over time as a writer, have to learn to shut your brain off and just watch the movie yeah. or read the book. Because otherwise you're going to spend the whole time going, oh man, what the heck? Look at that plot hole, plot hole, plot hole. Because I have movies that my writer brain thinks are stupid. That like my, my just he, we, I love, and you know, I love explosions, I think are great. Okay, like the movie Black Panther, I thought Black Panther was awesome looking. It was like a cool idea, like the soundtrack, it was just fun. And then the plot, if I stop to think about the plot, it's infuriating how bad it is, right? So it's one of those, you know, just kind of learn from it and go. Okay, this next guy who's coming up to answer a question is a man we've actually talked about on the show a bunch of times. All good, we swear. Actually, you've come up a lot. This is Eric James Stone, and we, uh, we've had episodes where we talk about short fiction. You're usually, the, I don't know if you heard, but you're usually the guy we cite as being one of the best uh, short fiction writers alive. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, so I we weren't paid for that. <laughs> I wanted to, to get your take on one of the hot-button issues nowadays, and that is AI writing. Oh. Uh, you know, where it's at now and what do you think it's going to be like in the future? That's actually one we're going to do a whole... We were actually talking about this last time we got together, doing a whole yeah. episode on it. Uh, yeah, Cliff Notes version is... Uh, it's super invasive in the market right now. And I mean, there are people... There, there are, I guess, people. There are people who are training the AI guy thing, whatever, to, uh, to just crap out pieces of fiction did you see that i'm one of the i'm one of the writers they uh they stole from to uh build it uh, i didn't see that yeah yeah i'm on the list oh nice yeah congrats they proud of you in fact there's a little like a little testy thing where you can go and you can test to see what the likelihood something was written by an ai was and actually 
if you plug in the original Monster Hunter, it actually, not because it looks like it's written by an AI, it's because I'm one of the ones the AI stole from. And so it's like, oh, this was written by an AI. No. Oh, it's, yeah, you, you could have, because it's like, yeah. But beyond that, whatever my personal feelings about it are as an artist, it's coming, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And what I think business-wise, and I was having a brief conversation this morning with somebody, as we're tell, I was telling them we're doing an episode about this. Business-wise, I think who it's going to get affected the most are the guys who are not as well-known. They don't have your brand. You don't have like you know your 10,000 loyal fans ready to follow you into hell. It's the guys that are trying to make it, who are already struggling on Amazon against these 600,000 other books that came out this month to try to get differentiated. Well, because what we're seeing is these dudes are going to take this, and rather than write a book a month, they're going to write a book a day. And they're going to churn it out, and it's going to have an AI-generated cover, and it's going to have AI-generated everything, and they're going to churn this sucker out there, and they're going to put it out for sale. And if they sell one copy, two copies, whatever copies, it doesn't really matter. Because they're just doing the churn. Yeah, it's it's all it's pure volume. For yeah, them. and they're just playing the numbers game. Now, how is this going to shake out business-wise? I don't know because, like I said, like there's that great sea of people who don't have an established brand, who are already struggling to stay above the surface of crap. Yeah. Well, that sea is going to get a whole lot more turbulent, guys. Whether you like it or not, it's coming. I remember, uh, there, gosh, I, I saw the owner of Athon Books. Uh, his name's Steve. That good, means he's a good guy. Good dude. Um, he he actually ended up having a conversation with Amazon about this because he saw how much how bad some of the stuff was coming, um, and there were there were some some fairly okay large um, indie authors who were saying, "Well, shoot, uh, I'm just going to completely embrace it, and I'm just going to put out you know." A book a week or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's actually been some controversy because one indie author who's actually fairly successful and well-known came out like, he's like, I love it. It's, I think it's awesome. I'm going to use it. Now, I've actually seen other people who say, like art, like the guy I was talking to this morning, he's like, artistically speaking, he wants to use it like the AI artists where you take, ele- you already know how to use Photoshop and you take elements of the pictures you generate and use those to create more. and use. But to me, artistically speaking, creatively speaking, I don't know about you guys, editing is hard. Editing is work. Writing is fun. Yeah. So why would I abdicate to a machine the fun part so then I can then take the machine's product and then massage it into something that's good? That sounds... Seems like we should do the reverse. That sounds like the worst thing ever. <laughs> uh, and like me personally, I'd rather die than do that. Now, I've heard people say, well, what about when the AI gets better and it just replaces you entirely? Like I'll say, I... I, I like right now, I have the Larry Korea brand. I sell books to my fans. They know my stuff. So I'm not one of those guys trying to be above the sea of crap. I'm in a comfortable boat on the sea of crap, okay? Um, I'm still floating along with you guys, but, you know, it's, I got a better view. So what happens, like, people are like, well, what happens when the AI gets more advanced and it actually replaces you? And, like, it actually can beat you. Okay, well, here, we're not there yet, because if you read the stuff that this, the AI puts out today, you know, it's, it's kind of crap. But what happens when we do get to, like, Samaritan and the machine, uh, where it can't... We get to the point where if I lose a contest of a test of soul to a soulless machine, I probably should hang it up anyway. Now, will this happen? I don't know because, guys, AI, I mean, we're getting into the sci-fi elements here. I don't think we're there yet. How far out are we from actual AI that is actually that good that it could replace good artists? I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't we're know. getting to, like we're getting to the sci-fi element of thing. At that point, though, they're probably selling in a Terminator robot dog with a flamethrower to your house anyway. So who knows? I mean, I I don't know. The thing that I don't know. Uh, well, here's my take. Well, say anybody who swears they know is full of crap. Yeah, this is all too new. Here's here's my personal opinion on this. Um, I think that there is a. If, if you think that there's just a line and it's a binary choice on yes or no to this, I think you're deluding yourself. Um, just like, just like the adoption of, you know, a typewriter or a word processor with spell check over time, some of these things are just going to be tools to use. Um, it would behoove us as writers to understand the progress of that technology and measure it and see how it's affecting us um, and see how it's changing from, I mean, gosh, these days from day to day. Uh, but um, to say, I, I, I think the, the moral ambiguity of using it is a very, very massive murky gray area right now. Um, I, I was talking with one of my buddies who's a, who's a very good artist about it and, He's of two minds. One, he's very worried because he's an artist. But on the other hand, he's like, but he's like, what if I could, what if I could use it to speed up maybe one small piece of it? Like, okay, like in the author side, like what if I could use it to speed up an, uh, an editing process? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, I'm hardly one to judge. Uh, for now, um, I'm just going to write the best that I can. Uh, and I'm actively, as, as all authors are, we're actively trying to improve that day to day. But, ah. so there's your answer. There's your big, impressive answer, Eric. Ah. I don't know, man. Like I said, I, anybody who says, oh, it's going to be this, this, and this. They don't freaking know. They're guessing. Yeah. Honestly, because we're here in the year 2023 on a technology that's relatively new and rapidly evolving. And we don't even know what all is still behind closed doors yeah, in the development of this stuff. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. And we don't know what, I mean, I mean, unless you're an AI specialist, and I've talked to AI specialists about like some of this stuff, there's a lot of hurdles still. But, but it also, some of the most smartest people in the world are more scared of this than they are of like the proliferation of nuclear weapons. <laughs> you know what I mean? So who knows? Honestly, yeah. Put my sci-fi cap on. I don't know, man. I don't know. At least we're honest. <laughs> I uh, kind of asked this question in the spirit of Last Jedi and maybe some yeah. of the rewrites on Residue. Sure. Uh, when is, what are your feelings on retconning and when is it mm. justified and when is it not? Oh, okay. Oh. Um, retcons. That's interesting. Um, that is a good question. Okay. So the, the thing about these live episodes, they put us on the spot because that's actually an interesting. Okay. So retconning in movie franchises. I'm is not a, a big fan thing. of it. I'm not a big fan of it in movie franchises. Yeah. And it's usually, usually what it is is a crutch or it's because uh, having worked with these, some of these guys, like some continuity on some IPs, like when I was doing aliens, mm -hmm. basically the aliens IP, the continuity changes with every director of every movie. They would throw out previous stuff and then just do whatever they wanted. And then the fans 
and book writers would like scramble behind the scenes to like try to explain all that stuff. Now, in books, there are occasions, especially when you have like uh, a, a continuing series. Like I've been doing Monster Hunter for 15 years now, so we're at eight, next eight books, three spinoffs, four, four spinoffs, and an anthology and another anthology. So a lot of stuff, right? There are going to be points in time where I think of something that was cooler than what I did before. And I need to be real careful about how I shoehorn that in in a way that doesn't break the previous book. Yeah. The real key is don't piss off the fans. So mostly that's one reason uh, I'm a big fan of unless you need to explain it for story purposes or some effect, leave it vague. So like if I'm talking about events in a book that like are off screen or happened 10 years ago or whatever, we can just refer to the incident in wherever. We can refer to Decision Week without giving away everything. And then a couple books later, I can have one of the experiments from Decision Week show up. And I'm actually not screwing anything up because I've only referred to Decision Week vaguely. Uh, but I, you know, see what I'm saying? So I left it open. So the main thing on retcon is don't pin yourself in so you don't have to do it. Now, when you're doing... Part of the genesis of that question is because I just kind of went back and redid some of Residue. The biggest thing with that is you have to avoid the temptation to radically change things. Um, like it or not, there are, there are, um, you're always going to have fans who, who kind of have this expectation based on what they've read. So, you know, the author's edition of The Stand, the author's edition of The Tomb by F. Paul Wilson, um, all these books, when they went back and they changed things, in general, they were... A lot of times they added clarification, but they didn't change any story events. And that's, that's what I did with, with Residue. I didn't, I didn't retcon anything except the character's age. I aged him up two years. Now, that was a conscious decision actually to make things more logical for some of the events that happened. And because in book two, it had zero effect. I mean, it literally has no effect in the future books. So I thought... Okay, well, that's fine. Now, anyone who's already read that book, they can pick up book two. They can, they can ignore book one, the, the redo of book one, and be just fine. They can read book two, and they're going to feel just fine. That's it. Um, but the, the biggest thing for me was, okay, I, I can't go too wild. I can't. Because otherwise, man, I'll get crucified over things. Yeah, the, the, un, the unforgivable retcon is when you do something like Last Jedi, where they did the whole space ram scene. Okay, yeah. and I ever seen everybody in the audience is everyone's making, like, cringed. They're like, the like warding cringe. off vampire signs here, or vomiting or whatever. I know it's because that that was one of those. It's like, hey, we're going to destroy the continuity of like every space battle that came before. So that's a retcon that's like big and glaring. It pokes you in the eye. Yeah, that's the, that's what you want to do. Just we want to avoid at all costs because fans hate that. Okay, oh. if you have written something that you think will be a good fit for multiple publishing houses oh. and you're submitting a query letter, should you do it one at a time or is it okay to go to multiple? Um, there is no loyalty. Submit to all. Yeah, see, in the old days, they used to have this very much, this honor system of like, oh, they submit to one at a time and then, yeah, you know what? And then they make you wait for, you know, two years yeah. before they get back to you. Ah, no, I don't, I, I don't You know what? It, I, I want to turn in a story and then if... If that publisher is excited about my story and about working with me, that they get back to me quick, well, then I want to work with them. Yeah, if they had a three-month turnaround, sure. Yeah, I'll wait. They don't. No. 
I was talking to a guy earlier. Um, it took uh, two years, two or three years, I think, for, for a publisher to see his book. That's a long time, oh, but yeah. that's and average. That, yeah, I was going to say that's probably pre- pretty good now. That's average. And honestly, we, we, and this is all, all that honor code stuff predates the, uh, the, indie, the indie book revolution. Yeah. Where Why wait three years for a publisher to probably, odds are, reject you when you can go make money off that thing for three years? Money, you know? money right now. I mean, this is math. Time value of money. Time yeah. value of money. We had money to learn right this crap now. in college. Yeah, I know, and it sucks. Um, I hate but those money, calcs. but money right now is worth more to you than maybe potentially a slightly more amount of money later. I mean, that that's just solid math. That is indisputable. Yeah. Well, we're gonna get some publishers mad at us, but hey, you know what? Speak yeah, your screw stuff those up. guys. <laughs> How do you get your book on Audible? What happens once they it, once the process is started, and how much control do you have over the narrator that's used? Okay, there's two different things there at play. It's whether you produce your own audiobooks, or whether you are going through a publisher, uh, and and or whether Audible is doing it for you. Yeah. Like me, my audiobooks are produced by Audible. So what do I do? They take the book and make it. I do nothing. And it's they, awesome. And they choose, the, they choose the narrator. Yeah, and at this point in my career, though, they actually come to me and they say, hey, Larry, we're think, for this project, we're thinking of these three different narrators. Which one do you like the best? You know, that kind of thing. But early on, but it, honestly, I just trust them. And I have a few narrators I work with over and over again. If you're going independent and you're producing it yourself, then you are hiring this out. Yep. Uh, like, like you've done this now with Michael Yeah, uh, we just Michael did that Rothman. with Rothman. Yeah, we, so we, we hired out... Uh, a narrator for it. It's still in production. Um, but the whole thing there is you have to front that money. Um, paying audible or paying narrators, at least that are good. And this is where, man, you get what you pay for when it yes. comes to narrators. This is one of those things. Um, it might not be uh, talking about value of money again. It might not be worth your return on investment to even make an audiobook, especially if you have to get a really good narrator, which you should, um, because a, if an if a audiobook isn't actively helping you sell your book, then it's actively preventing you from selling your book. There's no in between. Um, yeah, and this is actually in, in, in to, I because I've not done this myself. I don't have figures. We should actually do an episode on this. And yeah, bring we'll on, get an episode. Bring on Michael. Yeah, we'll get Michael. Yeah, we'll bring Michael Rothman on, and because he's done this repeatedly with different. And different languages. Yep, and and that's that's one of the big things too is the foreign language cost of producing an audiobook is actually even more expensive, because they're not just producing the audiobook based on what you wrote, it's of the translation contextually of what you wrote, and yep. that's super super important. Yep. So we actually that's something we we will have a whole entire episode yeah. on. So is there anything you really want to write that you haven't been able to yet because the stars don't align? And you share anything about that? Okay, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, so many. Okay, so there's, because it's funny because people are like, we'll give you a, hey, I got this great idea. Uh, 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 you write the book, take my idea, you write the book and we'll split the money. And I'm like, ha, 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 whatever, dude. I have so dang many ideas I'd like to get oh to. Oh my gosh. But I haven't yet. Um, oh man, I mean... I mean, obviously, the next one on my plate, are, there's two that I need to write on my plate, and that's Werewolf Cop. We, everyone knows this. Dude, you've been, like, like, people have been bugging you for that for years, and you keep writing all these other novels that you're getting paid well, for. Well, that's because I get paid, um, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, 
and then and then the other one is my is my totally not Gundam uh, sci-fi, and so uh, you know those are the two. Now that one, the first book on that one's already half written, but uh, apart from that, ooh, dude, I could, if I had if I had three clones of me, Jeez. I could get to where I need to be. That's my problem. I I owe. So many books. And it's funny, too, because it, it kills me. guys. You, so this last Liberty Con I went to is the, the most tired I've ever been at a con at the end. <laughs> you and were. part of it, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> but part of it is people come up to me and they're like, they got pitches for me. I'm in a good position career-wise. And they're like, hey, Larry, I got this great idea. Or they're pitching a collaboration to me. Or they're pushing a Monster Hunter memoirs idea to me. Or some sort of spinoff or something, right? And and just because of logistics, it could be a brilliant idea. But like I'm like, dude, that's not, I think you're awesome, and I think that's an awesome idea. I just can't. And then they then they get this like look on your face, like you shot their dog yeah. in front of them, right? <laughs> and I do this t- twenty times a day. Well, I just just for just for context, um, we we did this. Larry and I had our coffee clutches at the same time, oh. which is bad for me. Um, that means that, and David Weber too, at the same time. Yeah, Steve I'm like, com- great. Steve is competing against me and David Weber. Great. So, uh, but I look, I, I sit down next to all the other authors who aren't getting talked to. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was like, it was me, Dave Butler and Howard Andrew Jones. We were just chilling. And I look over and Larry hasn't even sat down 30 minutes in because person after person is coming over. T- and literally every one of them was pitching an idea. I literally never made it to my seat. Uh, yeah. in this event. I, uh, it was, for an it was, hour. It was an hour long event and I walked in the room and as people had pitches for me and I literally never made it the, the, the 30 feet from the door to my chair. And, and it was every, and almost all of them were, I got a pitch, I got a pitch, I got a pitch, I got a pitch. I pitch. I'm not an editor guys. <laughs> so actually that was a great question, but like, uh, I have so many things I want to do that I just, I'd love to do another Tom Stranger. Oh my gosh, I'd love to do another Tom Stranger, but I gotta get the time. I got another Lost Planet Homicide I'm doing. I want to do a Lost Planet Homicide novel. Yep. Um, I would, I'd love to do more Gunrunner stuff. I would, I've actually had ideas for other game stuff. I'm still, for three, for three years, I've been planning on kickstarting Gritty Cops Show. Yeah. And, uh, and producer Jack's been waiting for me to like finish writing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have I have many many things as far as things but I, but I believe I've talked about everything I want I'm doing I got another Grimoire trilogy but that is actually that's on the planned, calendar though. that's yeah. planned that's actually official because um, once I finish the fifth and final book of Saga the Forgotten Warrior which might be part one and two depending on how big it is uh, but it's getting done um, that opens up basically a slot in the rotation that I would do Grimoire again a 1950s trilogy which I've got I've had planned for like. Well, eight so, years. I was going to say, since you finished Warbound. Yeah. And so I got a million things that I want to do. But yeah. I think I've talked about most of them. I, I do, at some point, will write something from every single genre that I like, uh, whether it sells or not. So at some point, I'm going to write a Western. I was going to say, I, I really want to write a Western. Uh, no, no, I'm not a romance Genres guy. that he likes. Genres that I like. I will, I will, at some point, do a straight-up... Uh, cop police procedural gritty cop show kind of thing yeah not and not just a sci-fi version but i will actually at some point do or that the, just or the fantasy version or the other I'm actually versions. The, the, the weird thing is i got i got ideas for a couple more thrillers that i want to do mike cooper and i have talked for like 10 years about old man lorenzo doing yeah. an old man lorenzo lo- novel because uh, you man. thought he, if you thought he was a violent vindictive dude at 45 imagine this guy at 65 well, um and and i really 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 want to write this this sword and sorcery stuff, this idea that I have. Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, you've been hanging out with Howard. uh, I know he's a, he's a wonderful, terrible influence on me. Yeah. 
But anyway. Which, which is interesting because actually my, at my publishing house, the success of Son of the Black Sword has actually energized that little section of the market yeah. for us. And we've actually brought on more people uh, specifically doing sword four, and sorcery people. Yeah, three or four uh, very stuff. recently. Yeah. And it's because of the financial success of Son of the Black Sword has opened up a different venue for us. Okay. We have the time for your last question. Okay. So we're going to we're speed round now. They're going to throw us out. The answer is yes. <laughs> How do you identify the line between writing what you know and <laughs> delving into self-insert? <laughs> oh man, okay. I and I have uh, tripped over that line. Um, yeah. One of one of the one of the criticisms I get on my first book is Owen Pitts and Mary Sue. Is a self-insert because he's an accountant who shoots guns good. He's a big guy. He's an accountant. He shoots guns good. But here's the thing: they say write what you know. And I needed a job that was like the most stereotypical, boring job imaginable. And everybody, what, what is the public perception of accounting? Man. It's boring, right? Uh, that's not true. Accounting is actually kind of awesome. <laughs> I liked it. Um, it's fun, actually. That's finding. because you're retired. Well, that's also because I like finding fraud. <laughs> that's fair. I love that part. I have a great BS detector. Um, okay, so the thing is you want to write what you know, but you don't want to like, Pace hang a lampshade on. If I wasn't such a public persona as a writer, no one would have ever known. No one would have ever known I was a, a, a gigantic big dude who likes to fight and likes accounting and guns. If it wasn't for my like very in-your-face social media presence, no one would have ever known that I had shared those things. Now that said, I actually have nothing at all like Owen Pitt personality-wise. No, those, you're not Polynesian for one. Well, I'm not. That's another thing too. I'm Portuguese, and then. Um, Actually, of all the characters in Monster Hunter, I have more in common with Trip, literally, yeah, than any other character true. in that. Because you're both big nerds. Yeah, but nobody would ever put those two together, right? Because, the, so honestly, don't worry about that too much. As long as the characters are still fallible and human and relatable, that's what matters. I think it's inevitable that some of your personality is going to, is going to show up in a character or ten. Um, that's inevitable. Oh, dude, I'm also Lorenzo. You know, I'm yeah, I mean, also... I'm Christoph. What does that say? He's, oh, my gosh. <laughs> that says a lot. You know, I, I'm also, I'm also uh, Jimmy the Intern. <laughs> Every character you write is going to have elements of your personality in them. And, and, and they should. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm part Faye Vieira. Holy crap. Yep. And so, so, so it kind of, every, everything you write is going to have that element of your personal, and that's fine. Honestly, the Mary Sue thing, as long as they're good characters, as long as they're good characters, and they still have to struggle and grow and yep. experience life, that's what matters. All right, well, thank you all so much. Uh, that's all the time we have. This, uh, we went almost exactly an hour, which means it's, you know, just slightly longer than our regular 30 minutes that aren't 30-minute episodes. So, um, all right. So, like I always do, thank you all so much. Um, we really appreciate your support. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. This is the Writer Dojo, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Naibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us 
by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Yeah, in the, in the words of the philosopher Sean and Gus from Psych, they can suck it. <laughs>